0: So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. How we doing? Uh, So my name is Tyler. Um, I'm on staff at City on the Hill Brookline. Um, City on the Hill Brookline is another one of the network churches that um, you guys are a part of. Uh, It's great to be with you guys today. Um, So many new faces, so many familiar faces. Um, it's, it's good to see you. Uh, my, my wife, Ashley and I both have uh, a really special spot in our heart for Somerville and for Coa Somerville. Um, Fletcher Lang, your pastor, uh, was actually my boss and my pastor for a few years when he was on staff at Coe Brookline, before we came over to Coa Somerville. And then he and his uh, wife, Megan, uh, led my wife and I through our premarital counseling, and then Fletcher actually married us a few years ago. Um, so through them, both we kind of have a deep love for you all, um, on top of that, Ashland actually uh, lived in Somerville for about four years, over in Union Square, um, and went to this church for about six months, in its early stages, and was part of the um, Schmeising CG, and, and just did life with, with um, a few of you guys that are, that are still around, still here. So, um, we love you guys, it's good to see you, it's good to be here. Um, if you're new, um, or this is your first time, or uh, you just haven't been in a while, you're joining in the uh, middle of a series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, so, the past three months or so, We've been working through the first chapter, first two chapters very slowly. Um, Ephesians, if you don't know, was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. And so far, chapters 1 and 2, he's covered a lot of ground. Um, chapter 1, Paul talks about the riches of our salvation. And then in chapter 2, he works out a few of the implications of these riches, of these blessings. Um, and he talks about salvation through faith and the unification of Jews and Gentiles into one people of God. And, There's a lot in those two chapters. If you haven't read those two chapters yet, or uh, you haven't heard some of the sermons on that, I encourage you to go back and read those, go back and listen to those, um, because all of those lead up to our text today in chapter three. Um, But before we dive in, I kinda wanna challenge us. I wanna try to get us to get in the mindset um, of the people who first heard this passage. The Christians in Ephesus, when they first heard this passage, they first read this passage, how they might react, how they might think about what Paul is saying here. So, uh, in 1980, The Empire Strikes Back came out, it premiered in movie theaters. Um, it's, it's one of arguably the greatest Star Wars movies of all times, of all time, and it has one of the most iconic uh, movie lines ever uttered in cinematic history, right? And if you're here and you're someone who hates Star Wars, you probably know the line, right? Um, it's, it's a moment that's lived on for 40 years. Um, and there's an actual video online, you can Google it, you can YouTube it, it's, it's super old, um, really grainy, really bad audio, um, but it's one of the theaters on opening night, and they capture the moment where the crowd hears the line, No, I am your father. And everyone goes nuts, right? Every, like, there are gasps in the crowd, there are people shouting no, people are losing their mind. Um, it's just absolutely crazy, right? This, 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 this revelation, this, this, this crazy turn in the plot, it's nuts. And I actually kind of went down a rabbit hole as I was digging into this and I was reading forums online about it. I even texted my dad because he's a big Star Wars fan. And so growing up, I was like, Dad, what was this like? And he was like 10 or 11 when it came out. And he said, it was crazy. And, and he remembers it as being a moment of just like huge controversy. He said that for the next three years before the next movie came out, people were arguing about that moment. They're like, is it true? Like, is it true? I think Vader's trying to get into his head. I think he's lying or maybe it is true. Um, and then the forums online that I read, they all said the same thing, that it was actually a lot of arguing about what, what does this mean? Is this true? And what's interesting is that scene, that line, it doesn't hit us nearly the same, right? Unless you haven't heard about that before, which I'm sorry if I ruined it for you. But it's been 40 years. Like, come on. Like, it's, so it's, it doesn't hit us the same, right? It's pretty much commonplace. People are literally born knowing Vader is Luke's father right? It doesn't hit us the same way. We are so used to hearing that. It's so cultural that it's like, yeah, cool. Vader's Luke's father. I get it. And the thing is, we we totally do this with the gospel, too. We totally do this with God's word. We totally do this with God's work in our lives. So I challenge you this morning to think about how the Christians in Ephesus felt when they heard about the things that we read, when they heard about the mystery being revealed. What did they think for the first time? Just like the people in that movie theater. What did they think for the first time? What did they think when the mystery was revealed? Because as we look at our passage today, we're going to see that God is no longer a mystery to us. God is no longer a mystery to us. And two thoughts to show this to kind of guide our time today. God is no longer a mystery to us because the mystery has been made known and God Is no longer a mystery to us because the mystery is experienced. So the mystery has been made known. Um, In our passage Paul uses the word mystery three times. Uh, And and the Greek word for mystery could actually also be translated as secret. And that's super important because when you hear the word mystery in modern English, it kind of has some connotations that it's something we can discover. It has um, this idea that if you work hard enough, you look all the right places, you find all the right clues. Um, You observe the right things, you can figure it out. You can discover the mystery, right? Just like a detective. Whereas a secret is something that's told to you. And so when the word mystery is used here, that's more what it means. Our knowing this mystery is based on someone telling it to us. So when we hear Paul use the term mystery in verses 3, 4, and 6, we should be clear that Paul didn't put the clues together. Paul didn't look in all the right places to find. The mystery of the gospel. He didn't discover it himself. And if you look very closely at the text, it's pretty clear. Verse 3, he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. In other words, the mystery was shown to him. It was made known to him. He He didn't discover it. And Paul actually uses this language a lot of other places in Scripture, too. He uses this language of the mystery of the gospel was revealed. He had a revelation. Almost as if to say, not look what I found, But look what found me. Look what was revealed to me." And the Lord revealed this to Paul in in kind of dramatic fashion. If you aren't familiar with um, Paul's story, Paul was a man who was well-educated. He was on his way to becoming one of the most respected Jewish leaders of his time, and he was completely against Christians. He was completely against Christianity, so much so that the scripture describes him as the one who breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But one day Paul was traveling to a city um, called Damascus, and Jesus revealed himself to Paul. He, like the, the, the risen Jesus actually revealed himself to Paul and said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that day forward, Paul was a Christian. And when we say uh, the mystery was revealed to him, that's what we mean. It means that God made himself known to Paul. It means that the revelation was from God. And now at this point, too, we're only like four or five verses into our text. Paul probably has the Ephesians on their feet already, right? Because he's mentioned this mystery a couple times. And they're like, what is this mystery? That's like me coming up to you and saying, hey, I have the secret. I have the secret. I have the secret. I have this big secret. And he tells us in verse five and six what the actual mystery is. In verse um, five and six, he says, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So let's deal with verse 5 first. God is revealing something that was not previously known. Not in its entirety. And notice though, Paul doesn't say that this mystery didn't previously exist. He just simply says that it wasn't known. Because Jesus, when Jesus was all over the Old Testament. Right? The, the scriptures in their entirety are saturated with Christ. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies about him. In the Old Testament, there are promises that God makes to his people that find their yes and amen in Jesus. There are um, symbols of Jesus. There are types of Jesus. There are shadows of Jesus. He's everywhere. Right? And, and, and God's people in the Old Testament, they certainly had a sense that one day God would redeem his people. They certainly had a sense that one day God would send a Messiah of sorts, but they didn't know all of that the way we do now. They didn't know it the way that Paul did. They saw a tiny fraction of the tiniest percentage of the mystery, of God's mystery. But we see those things now. We know those things now because we're on the other side of the resurrection, because we're on the other side of that mystery. And the word now in that verse, the mystery is now revealed. It actually, it doesn't point to a certain moment, very particular moment in time, it actually kind of represents the beginning of a new era, right? So I'm sure you've heard the phrase, now is the time, right? Now is your time. It doesn't mean that exact moment, that exact second is your time. It means now. Now is your time, right? And so what Paul's saying is that now, now from the point of the cross onward, now is the time that the mystery has been revealed. We are living now in the time that the mystery is revealed. And verse 6 finally tells us what that mystery is. Verse 6 tells us the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that God is now known to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are you and me, unless we have any ethnic Jews in the room. The Gentiles are now you and me. That the Gentiles in Ephesus and now across the whole world have the same ability ability to intimately know God. To be partakers of the promise in Christ. The same way that God loved and chose Israel is the same way that we are now loved and chosen. The same promises that God made to Israel that find their yes and amen in Jesus. God now makes those promises to us. That means that through this revelation, that through this mystery, you can know God. That through what God has done, not us doing anything, in revealing this mystery, we can know Him in Christ. One of my my favorite themes in Ephesians so far is how active God is. You guys picked up on that the past three months? The first two chapters? How active God is and how We aren't, right? If you read Ephesians um, closely, you'll notice that God does everything in chapters 1 and 2. God is doing everything. God is the one doing all the blessing, and and we are not um, doing anything but receiving. Just a few previous verses that show this. um, Chapter 1 verse 4, we are holy and blameless before him. Why? Not because of anything we done, but because he chose us. Chapter 2, we are made alive together in Christ. How? Why? By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Later on in chapter 2, we are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Not by your blood, but by the blood of Christ. Not by what we can do, but what the blood has done on the cross. And, and, and all these things they have in common, they're all God. They're all God. And this mystery is the same the revealing of this mystery is the same. That means you can stop trying to figure it out. That means you can stop trying to earn your way to God through the way you love and serve other people. That means you can um, stop trying to earn God's approval. That means you already have it in Christ because He's revealed Himself through the mystery to you. He is the one that has revealed the mystery. Therefore, God is the reason we can know God. And I know that sounds kind of weird. Why can you know God? Because God. How can you know God? Because God. Why are you close to God? Because God. Something we should know, though, too, um, is that God is the one that revealed this mystery, and that he's enabled us to know him. But it actually, So it actually came at a cost. At least it came at a cost to three people. First, the mystery cost God himself. Verse 6 tells us that the mystery gives the Gentiles, so you and me, the ability to know God through the gospel, through the gospel, through the perfect life, the torturous death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can now know God. It cost God because God needed a sacrifice to rid us of our sin. There's a price that needed to be paid so that we might know him. And Paul has said this multiple times already in multiple ways. He's he's shared the gospel multiple times in the book of Ephesians. Um, Chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That came at a cost. Verse 13, which we already read, But now in Christ Jesus you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off were brought near at a cost. Paul says this, in in an equally intriguing way in first corinthians chapter 6 when he says straight up you were bought with a price you were bought with a cost so this mystery cost god second person this mystery cost was paul and and when i talk about paul here um he he, just kind of using him as an example uh, it costs christians throughout generations um, it cost them to, to propel the gospel message, to advance the kingdom of God. I'm just kind of using him as an example because it cost Paul specifically. As I said earlier, Paul, prior to becoming a Christian, was a well-respected Jewish leader. Jewish leader right? He was kind of advancing, kind of climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak. He probably had the utmost respect from his peers. He probably was never um, without need, whether financially or, or some kind of material need. He was probably never without need. But look where he is now. Look at verse 1 and look at why he's there. He's a prisoner, but notice he says he's not a prisoner of Rome. He says a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. See, the preaching of this mystery, the preaching of the gospel cost Paul something. He wouldn't be in prison if he wasn't preaching the gospel. In fact, he'd probably still be um, a Jew. He'd probably still be climbing the corporate ladder. He'd probably still be advancing. He'd probably um, still have utmost respect. It cost Paul a promising career. It cost Paul suffering. I'm sure it cost Paul friends. I'm sure it cost Paul family. And eventually, it cost Paul his life. And And it costs many others. Again, many others through the generations like him that were preaching the gospel message, that were living out their faith, it cost them too. And the third person this uh, mystery costs is, is you, is me, is us. You see, when you accept this mystery of Christ, when you accept this gospel, when you know God, you immediately have to pay a cost, and you will continue to have to pay a cost. Not, not an eternal cost, Christ paid the eternal cost. Christ paid the cost um, that was due to be in God's presence. But you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer here on Earth. You will suffer for the mystery. Um, We live in the West. We live in America. So probably not in the same way that Paul suffered. Probably not in the same way that Christians in the Middle East are suffering now. But you will be present when people constantly ridicule Christianity at work. You will have that friend that you just can't get that close to, you can't connect with that deeply because they aren't Christian. You will have family members who just won't understand you because they aren't Christian. I mean, you live in Boston. You live in the Northeast. You live in an area that isn't just anti-organized religion. You live in an area that's very anti-Christianity. You're already suffering by living here in some senses. And the maraud of ways we can suffer are just kind of endless. But let me tell you, if you're here and you're suffering, please know it's worth it. Paul would tell you it's worth it. God is near. Ask almost anyone who's suffered deeply and they'll tell you it's painful, it's long, it's hard, but it's formative. It forms you. Elizabeth Elliot, who's written quite a bit on suffering, captures this this well when she says, um, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life... Have come from the deepest suffering and out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things i know about god so christian who is suffering know that god is going to bring purpose out of your suffering out of out of the deepest parts of your suffering out of the hardest moments you can come to know some of the deepest things about god It's not meaningless, and there's still comfort that's offered to you in the midst of that suffering. In light of that, Paul also tells us that knowing God, knowing this mystery, also comes with the sweetest of gifts, which leads us to our second part. The mystery is experienced. God experienced. So the mystery isn't just something we can know in our heads. It's something we can experience in our hearts. It's something that the believer actually enters into. So when you are a non-believer and God called you to himself and you responded, you immediately have access to all that God offers his people. And Paul lists um, a couple of those things that come along with the mystery. It's not just the knowledge of God you get. It's not just um, the fact that you see the mystery, but it's that you get to experience the good things that God gives us in the mystery. And Paul talks about a few of these. I'm just going to highlight three of them. The unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8, the manifold wisdom of God in verse 10, and boldness, access, and confidence in verse 12. So verse 8, Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. When you, when you think about that statement, when you think about that, when you look at Paul's life from the outside, you wouldn't expect him to say something like that. You expect someone who went from nothing to something to say that kind of statement. Not someone that went from something to nothing, at least from the outside, right? Paul went from respected rabbi uh, to a prisoner. Paul went from having essentially everything he needed to having, in a material sense, absolutely nothing, to being in chains. And there's great comfort in that. There's great comfort in that because it tells us that the unsearchable riches of Christ are available to you no matter what your circumstances. If Paul can experience this in prison, you can experience this anywhere. If Paul can be chained and say there are unsearchable riches in Christ that give me hope, that give me meaning, that give me purpose, that give me joy, and I am chained. Then so can we. Some of the words used in in different Bible translations actually paint kind of a bigger, more holistic picture when you consider them all. Some other translations say the untraceable riches of Christ, the inscrutable riches of Christ, the boundless, unfathomable, endless, incalculable, infinite, immeasurable, exhaustless riches of Christ. The riches of Christ are endless. You should find great comfort in the fact that the riches of Christ will always be new to you. Not just in this life, but the next. There is always a newness to experience in Christ's riches. And, and to be honest, here's, here's the thing that got me when I actually started thinking about this. The, the word unsearchable, unsearchable, when we're speaking about God, it makes sense. It makes so much sense that it's, it's almost nonchalant, right? Kind of like the line, I am your father. It kind of just hits you on the chest and then, then falls to the ground. Because there are a lot of other descriptors about God that are like that in the scriptures, right? God is vast. God weighs, God's ways are higher than our ways. God is infinite in his knowledge and God is omnipresent and omnipotent. So for the scriptures to also say, Christ has unsearchable riches, I mean, yeah. It kind of just sounds like more of the same though. Like, yeah, that's, that's good and we should, we should think about that and we should ponder that, but it kind of sounds the same. But but, here, but here's the thing that, 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 that got me. It kind of hit me in the face. The difference with the unsearchable riches of Christ is that these are something we can partake in. These are something that we can experience too. We can behold God's omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere. and We can praise him for that, but we can't experience that ourselves. We can't enter into that omnipresence, but we can enter into and we can experience the unsearchable riches of Christ. Also notice uh, Paul's qualifier here. He calls himself the very least of all the saints. The very least of all the saints. Again, a somewhat surprising statement when you look back at Paul's life in its entirety. Um, But as we talked about earlier, Paul, he persecuted Christians. He was present when Christians were killed and he approved of that killing. And he probably had those things in mind when he's writing this, when he says, I'm the least of all the saints. But it's a beautiful truth that the very least of us can experience and know the unsearchable riches of Christ. That means you don't have to have it all together. In fact, the reality that you don't have it all together makes you all the more qualified to come to Christ in the first place because he came for the people that don't have it together. We have all these burdens and all these sins, and we think we need to tidy up. We need to clean a little bit here and clean a little bit there, and then we come to God. We don't realize we're doing the very thing that God wants to do for us. Christ's unsearchable riches don't just give you a bunch of stuff and then leave you where you are with a gold chalice. Christ's unsearchable riches change you. They change you to look more like him. And the ultimate wrap, the ultimate reality, the ultimate reason these riches are unsearchable is because the unsearchable riches are Christ himself. It's Jesus himself. Because when you look at someone like Paul, who's in prison, he has nothing. He has nothing. And he is suffering, the only way that he could have riches of any kind is if he cherishes Christ. If he realizes that the unsearchable riches are actually Christ, Jesus himself. Paul also talks about the wisdom of God in verse 10 as another way we can experience and enter into the mystery. Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This is the only place in scripture where God's wisdom is described as manifold. It's kind of an odd word. I think when we first hear it, maybe get quite an, like a little bit of an idea of what God's saying. He's saying that God's wisdom is multi-pronged. God's wisdom is multifaceted. God's wisdom is massive and complex. And the wisdom of God is made known through the church. The wisdom of God is made known through the church, capital C, through the church throughout all time with all the believers and all the saints. God's wisdom is made known through this church, through Co. Somerville, through you guys. No pressure. Through the church, God's wisdom. God's plan for love and reconciliation are on display. And this should actually really shape the way you view your life. It makes it more God-centered. Ask yourself, why did you come to church today? Why did you come to church today? Was it because something you wanted? So to find happiness, find relief from something, to be comforted, socialize, Or was it to make known the wisdom of God to the world, and to the heavenly beings. Those other things, they're good. They're good, but they're byproducts. They're byproducts of the purpose of the church. If God is most concerned with his glory, then the church ought to be as well. When this verse says that through the church, or through the, when this verse says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God has made known, what does that lead to? God getting glory. Not only does God make his wisdom made known through the church to the world, but he makes it known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this, is, this sounds kind of bizarre, but it's, it's actually kind of simple. Spiritual beings, angels, all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places look down at you, at us. Look down at the church and they see the vast wisdom of God. And the plan of the church, in the revealing of the mystery that brought Jews and Gentiles together, that created the church, the heavenly beings, they look down and they see the wisdom of God. The last thing Paul talks about that I want to highlight is found in verse 12. In whom, so in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So part of knowing God, the way he intends for his people to, is to also have complete access to him. Knowing God is not just a cognitive thing, but it's a heart thing. It's equivalent to knowing someone on Facebook versus knowing someone in person and spending time with them and having a conversation with them, having access to them. I remember um, in college, I had a friend that I'd been sharing my faith with with, for for quite some time, and um, she she accepted Christ eventually after months and months of just great conversations and, and deep conversations. Um, and a little bit after that, we were walking on the beach and um, she just breaks down and starts crying. She starts crying. And eventually she shares that, that she actually just desperately, she desperately wanted to tell God that she loves him. And that statement kind of confused me because I was like, what do you mean? Well, just say it. And the thing was, when she started to pray, when she tried to come into God's presence, she just couldn't do it. Something was stopping her, um, and she had, a, she had a, a rough religious upbringing. She has a, a religious upbringing that kind of scarred her, so the thought of talking to God freely was hard for her. She kind of knew that, okay, you can talk to God, but it has to be formal. You have to be polite. You have to be cordial. Um, and, and maybe even more than that, someone has to talk to God for you, whether it's a priest or a pastor or, or someone else. And and honestly, as I look back at that conversation, I just desperately wish I knew this verse and had it on hand. So that I could say to her, in Jesus, you have boldness. In Jesus, you have access with confidence that God, being a good and loving Father, hears you. One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes, if you've been around Co for a while, you've probably heard it, Um, is the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child, and we have that kind of access. Friends, do not let the truth fly over your head that you are a child of God and that you have unlimited access to the one who made everything you see and the one who made everything you don't see. And don't let the truth fly over your head that you can come into God's presence with boldness and confidence that He is a good, loving Father and He wants to hear you. So, um, last thing as we wrap up, I want to point to one last thing in our passage. The last verse says, so I ask you not to lose heart over the things I'm suffering for you. I ask you not to lose heart. That is Paul saying that everything he's just talked about was in hopes that you would not be discouraged. Every truth that Paul has laid out um, should lead to your encouragement to keep you from being discouraged. So friends, let the gospel encourage you. Let the mystery of God now revealed encourage you. Don't let the gospel become like a movie line you've heard a thousand times. God is no longer a mystery to us, and that should be an encouragement. God has revealed the mystery of Christ, and that should be an encouragement. God has made a way for you, as a believer of Christ, to experience his goodness, to experience the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's my prayer that we walk away knowing that today. Let's pray. Father God, um, we are thankful that you have revealed the mystery we are thankful that you have revealed the mystery that we can be part of your family that through the gospel through jesus through his work through the work you've done through him we can know you we can experience you we can experience unsearchable riches in you jesus god i pray that we know that dearly we cling to that and We cling to you amen